Two weeks ago on Florida's east coast, a rocket lit up the sky. Brilliant orange light pierced through the coastal darkness and split the night for miles around. A sonic boom echoed across the peninsula after the Falcon Heavy rocket propelled itself into space at 2.30 a.m. on June 25th. It was the sixth launch from the area this year. This rocket in particular, called the Falcon Heavy, is a highly powerful rocket, able to launch 141,000 pounds into space. It is made up of several stages and functions that operate at different levels of the launch. Aesthetically speaking, it is a tall singular cone in the middle with two smaller cones on the sides. It's slimmer than the space shuttle that launched for decades and more powerful than the singular Saturn V that carried the Apollo program into space. By all accounts, the Falcon Heavy is the rocket of the future everything that a rocket could be. This launch was its third, bringing 24 satellites into space from various customers, including the Defense Department. There were over 100 containers of cremated human remains whose family purchased a spot on the flight. This commercial element is one of the most unique factors of the rocket, as well as its incredible sustainability. Parts of rockets that were once single-use are now finding ways to be returned to Earth and reused. One such piece is called the fairing, which is used to protect satellites and other payloads as they move through the atmosphere. After being used, they detach and fall back to Earth. The plan to reuse fairings is innovative and incredibly useful for SpaceX's enduring success in the field of space travel. A video posted by the company shares its re-entry with its long trail of heated particles that create this dazzling image of blue strands of light warping as it plummets to Earth. It looks like a spaceship entering warp speed in a movie, but it's completely real. Once it returns to the surface, it usually crashes in the ocean, which is bad for this reusable plan, since salt water is very corrosive. Instead, now, a boat with a net specially equipped for catching the pieces has been put to use, but has been ineffective up until now. The net caught it perfectly, and the fairing can be put to use yet again. Everything across the board did not go perfectly, however. The booster was meant to land back on a pad at the end of the main launch. It had worked before back in April, but this flight was not so lucky. It supposedly came in too fast and sideways and crashed down to Earth. But the payload up in the outer reaches of our atmosphere succeeded in its objectives. A solar flare, an engine testing environmentally friendly fuel, an atomic clock, and the remains of 152 individuals were left in space. It has been eight years since a manned flight left from American soil when STS-135 flew space shuttle Atlantis to the International Space Station. Other countries have consistently been launching up to ISS, but America has been quiet. But that destination for America may not be so far away. It is estimated that SpaceX will be able to return Americans to the station by the end of this year, if not early next year. 50 years ago, Cape Canaveral was facing a similar precipice. In May of 1969, it had been just eight years since the very first manned flight at all. Yuri Gagarin from Russia flew Vostok 1 into space, completed a single orbit, and returned to the planet on April 12, 1961. Now, in 1969, NASA's Apollo program was about to successfully do what had never been done before. They were going to put a human being on the moon. Everything had been planned, and each part of the project had been tested over and over again, in project after project. Now they needed to do a dry run, test every single element of the mission, excluding stepping foot on the lunar surface. This needed to go perfectly. Apollo 11 needed to go exactly as planned, and this meant that Apollo 10 needed to go exactly as planned. 
On that flight was a man named John Watts Young, a 38-year-old naval officer who had spent much of his young life in Orlando, Florida. He was the 19th human in space, the 8th American, and though his first two flights had been complicated and unusual, John Young had been trusted to be one of the three men to ensure that the Apollo mission would be a success. Within a few years, he himself would be on the moon. But before that, back in 1965 during Gemini 3, John Watts Young smuggled a corned beef sandwich into space. You know, it, it's, it's surprising when you look back at John Young's career and you see that, you know, he went to the moon twice. Um, but his, his first NASA mission, um, he smuggled a beef sandwich on board and people were very upset about that. And, and I think if, if you were to do that today, you would probably uh, not only be fired, but, but face some very stiff mm -hmm. uh, criminal penalties. Yeah. Um, so, so it's shocking to see that, you know, he was able to get past the beef sandwich incident um, and, and be on two Apollo missions, um, you know, commanding the command module pilot and, and commanding, you know, his, his uh, one of the later Apollo missions. Right. Um, but uh, I think that that definitely goes to show you his character, his leadership, and, and just how great of an airman he was. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. That was Brendan Byrne, producer and host at WMFE 90.7 News here in Orlando. His podcast, Are We There Yet?, is an analysis and discussion about space travel in the modern age and the race to Mars as NASA, SpaceX, and Boeing continue their advances. This week is the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and to celebrate, Brendan and I sat down to discuss John Watts Young, Orlando's local astronaut and Brendan's personal favorite. He's like, he's been described as like the astronaut's astronaut, mm -hmm. um, but just like watching him in interviews and stuff, he he made space. Um, it was like, it almost was like going to space was kind of, um, it, it was... It annoyed him, <laughs> you know. Like he, 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 he never, um, he never showed any emotion when he was talking about space. Like, like I was watching this, um, uh, this this interview with him, and so so John Young's been involved in like multiple programs. Mm -hmm. So he's in Gemini, he's in, in Apollo, um, and then he was going to be in in the space shuttle program, mm -hmm. but they didn't have the the funding yet, and so the funding gets passed, um, and so they asked John. Uh, in this interview, like, John, where were you when you found out that funding for the space shuttle uh, was approved by Congress? He was like, and he thinks for a second, he's, huh, I, I was on the moon. And he was on the surface of the moon, and they radioed to him to tell him that it hit back. That is <laughs> And he just said amazing. it so nonchalantly, like, oh, yeah, I was, oh, yeah, that, that, that must have been the day I was on the moon. Years before any of that, before he stepped foot on a rocket, John Young had made his way to Orlando, Florida. He was just 18 months old, leaving California when the Great Depression left much of the country in shambles. The South wasn't much better, with an unemployment rate of 31.7 with white workers. But the Young family was out of luck, and Orlando seemed to have plenty of opportunity. Young would attend schools in Central Florida for his primary education, and lived in a little house on Princeton Street in what is now called College Park. The house still stands, a historic marker denotes its former residence. Today, it's a little yellow home, shining in suburbia, and one of my favorite spots in the whole town. I didn't actually notice it for years as I drove past, even though it's a stone's throw from my favorite coffee shop. It wasn't until later, when there was no parking and I had to find some street parking, I wound up face to face with this sign. 
If you're an Orlando native, John Young's name is part of your life before you know who the name belongs to. One major road that passes around downtown is John Young Parkway, just five minutes from the home that bears his name. We really like him around here. There's even an electrical box painted near one of our theaters that has a picture of John Young and a deconstructed corned beef sandwich, but we'll get there in a minute. It makes sense why we like him. He wasn't just tremendously important historically. He was ours, and he did so much with a wink and a smile. America was in the middle of one of the most defining international conflicts we've ever encountered, and it wasn't a war. The Cold War had been influencing the geopolitical arena for a decade, and the conflict between the USSR and America was just growing. Sputnik 1 was launched in October of 1957, a little ball with four sticks poking out of it. It sailed through orbit for almost three months. It launched stark fear and panic across America. Then came the Mercury 7. They were seven American men, chosen specifically by NASA to be the Americans in space. Many of them were already test pilots, flying incredibly risky missions on behalf of the American military. Yuri Gagarin from Russia flew in April of 1961, but the American pilot Alan Shepard was right behind. About four weeks after the Russian returned, Shepard boarded the Mercury vehicle and launched into space. It was just 15 minutes, but America now had a foothold in the fight. Over a year and several flights later, President Kennedy delivered the speech that would change America's course forever. You've definitely heard it before. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. History would have you believe that it was all Kennedy's vision, but there was someone else pushing for this victory, then Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. It's interesting, like, I, I was learning about this from um, uh, a UCF history professor, but Kennedy didn't really care about space. Johnson did. Mm -hmm. And he was the one who pushed Kennedy to do it. But And Kennedy really needed to win. So you had, you know, back then you had, you know, the Bay of Pigs at this point. You know, it, it was it was not good for Kennedy. And Johnson convinced him, well, hey, you know, this is, this is your political win. I know they can do it. You know, he's got deep roots in Texas. I know they can do it. We just need to push him to do it. Johnson had checked with leaders in the industry and the military to see if getting to the moon was even possible or if we could beat Russia in the race. We didn't know, but Johnson had a relationship with NASA and with Texas where NASA was operating. The whole Kennedy administration was supporting this challenge and NASA was ready to expand. The Mercury missions had been successful and had propelled the program forward. Now it was time for phase two, Gemini. If you're balking at my pronunciation, you're in my shoes. If you saw the film First Man, which came out last year, they said it this way throughout the movie, and Brendan said it the same. The Gemini space program is pronounced like that. Gemini. Why? The answer is simply because. Most of the astronauts and administrators called it Gemini. 
so we will too. Gemini was different from Mercury. Mercury was single man flights. Gemini would follow its Latin translation meaning twins and carry two men into space. Five days, just five days after that iconic JFK speech on September 17, 1962, NASA astronaut Group 2, also known as the Next Nine, was announced. This group included Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and John Watts Young. Young had graduated from college in 1952 and immediately joined the Navy. He served on several ships throughout the Korean War before joining the Test Pilot School in 1959. It was here that he was recruited by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration for their next missions. Young was quickly known by everyone for his level-headed nature. So many accounts simply refer to him as cool. And he seriously is. Most pictures of him in this era show him steely-eyed with a smirk that denotes he knows everything that is to be known about any given situation. He is handsome and stands out from most of the other astronauts due to the natural charm of his face. You needed to have a certain energy, a level of confidence as an astronaut. Most of these guys from this era had different styles all around. Armstrong was reverent and quiet. Aldrin and White were sharp and comical. Young was a little bit of everything. Funny, confident, trustworthy, but his energy towards missions is what set him apart. There's a reason why he is the first, and, and there's this great quote from Charlie Bolton, who was the former director of Kennedy Space Center. He's also an astronaut, and he was also a pilot. And he said, you know, a lot of pilots fly their planes. John Young wears his. And I think that's, that is the best way to describe John Young. He is the mission. An aviator of his caliber would not be wasted. He was placed on Gemini 3 with Gus Grissom, my personal favorite astronaut. The first two missions of the Gemini program were tests without any humans on them, aimed to examine the rocket and the heat shield in flight. Once these missions were successes and the new vehicles were deemed capable of flight, Grissom and Young loaded into the ship with Grissom in command and Young as the pilot. They jokingly named the ship Molly Brown after the musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. This was because the last flight Grissom had flown from Mercury had resulted in his ship sinking below the ocean surface. They launched Molly Brown on March 23, 1965 and flew for nearly five hours. The mission's main goal was to test maneuverability in space. This was a success and showed that NASA could now operate and maneuver a ship in orbit. This would be essential in getting to the moon as a lunar module, which would land on the moon, would need to be able to reconnect with a command module in orbit. Young and Grissom were the first to make it possible. They were also the first Americans to eat a corned beef sandwich in space. Here's the story. A friend of Young's had bought the sandwich at a shop in Cocoa Beach and gave it to Young as a joke, who snuck it into a pocket. He kept it throughout the flight and then popped it out of a pouch while in orbit and offered some to Grissom, who found the whole ordeal to be hilarious. Though he did note this probably wouldn't go well with the superiors. They nibbled a bit, but were concerned that the rye bread crumbs could be dangerous in space. They pocketed the rest of the sandwich. This is one of those events that is essential to NASA lore. It's been told a million different times, and every time is so funny. When Young returned to Earth, the superiors were more than just unhappy. Members of Congress held committees to scold NASA for the sandwich, and new rules for food and space were put in place, all over a corned beef sandwich. What makes this even more interesting is how it reflects just how special Young was. 
He made a lot of officials angry, so angry that rules had to be changed. But that didn't mean Young was out. He was just too important. And 15 months later, Young would be on his second Gemini mission, Gemini 10. This time, he was in command, and his pilot was Michael Collins. Collins was part of the third group of astronauts to make it into NASA and would later pilot for Apollo 11. These men were exceptional pilots, precise in their ability to operate the modules in space. They not only connected with the booster in orbit, they also successfully reconnected with an abandoned booster that had been left in space by a previous mission, Gemini 8. There was no radar on the other booster, meaning that Young and Collins were operating their ship with eyes only. They knew how to do it. This is precisely why they were both selected to continue with NASA in the Apollo program. Apollo was another upgrade, three men per ship instead of two. And this time, this program would go to the moon. The program, however, started in disaster when Apollo 1 caught on fire during a routine test, killing the three astronauts, including Young's former partner, Gus Grissom. It was now clearer than ever that this had to be done perfectly. No mistakes, no flubs, no accidents. By the time Apollo ended in 1975, no other crewman of the staff died on a mission, and 12 men walked on the moon. No man, however, could have done it in the first place if it wasn't for Apollo 10 and John Young. Across the country, the same newspapers that would feature the daring exploits of the NASA aviators would also feature short strips by an artist named Charles Schulz. His comic, known as Peanuts, had been running nationally for almost 20 years after the first strip was published in 1950. During the 60s, when the Peanuts were at the early heights of their popularity, NASA had an idea. The launches were popular, but there needed to be a way to connect properly with pop culture and with young audiences. So they teamed with Shoals to create a series of comic collaborations. For months throughout Apollo, Peanuts would feature stories of Snoopy, who was known for his obsession with aviation, flying to and landing on the moon. When Apollo 10 was getting ready to launch, NASA officially named the lunar module Snoopy, saying it would have to go to the surface to quote-unquote snoop out where Apollo 11 would land. In Mission Control, in Houston, little stuffed Snoopies and Charlie Browns sat on top of consoles. Apollo 10 was ready. It was the final dress rehearsal for landing on the moon. They essentially ran every maneuver that Eleven would run besides actually landing a man on the moon. Who would be better to run the command module than John Young? He would sit, waiting, orbiting the moon like his friend Collins would do during Apollo 11. When the lunar module returned to Young's command module, part of it was jettisoned in space. It still floats there to this day, known as the only piece of formerly manned spacecraft still in space. The astronauts came home, and everything was in place. Apollo 11 would fly in two months, and Neil Armstrong would step foot on the moon. NASA had set a mission, a goal, and in just over a decade, they completed it. For Brendan Byrne, a goal like that in the modern age is a bit of a moving target. With an agency like NASA, you are 100% at the whim of whatever presidential administration is, is in the White House or whoever is controlling Congress, because presidential administration sets the tone, Congress sets the budget. Mm -hmm. um, and the problem is, these missions take a lot longer than four or eight years, right. which would be a typical time in office. Um, so the problem is you get these overlaps. So we have gone from um, the Bush administration wanted to return to the moon. 
Obama administration comes in and says, no, that's not the right thing. We're going to go we're to return to an asteroid and had this really crazy idea of actually like lassoing an asteroid and putting it into lunar orbit. Um, I don't know why that was where we were going with that one. But um, and then, uh, you know, the Trump administration comes in and they're. Their focus is we're going to go back to the moon again. So over the course of, you know, 12 or so years, we have we have switched the goal. Um, we have canceled started programs, canceled programs, restarted programs. Um, so there's a lot of political mess mm-hmm. happening in this whole thing. Um, I think it is important that you do have that deadline. Kennedy came out and said, we choose to go to the moon by the end of the decade. They did. And if it wasn't for that deadline it probably wouldn't have happened. But it's about more than just those goals. NASA is doing missions you've never heard of, accomplishing things that sound so crazy minuscule, but are so important to our future successes. At this moment, there is a spacecraft about the size of a minivan Mm -hmm. that is um, orbiting this asteroid that is zooming through our solar system um, at a very, very close rate. And it's going to come so close to this asteroid and land not even land, but just put its little arm out. It's going to blow a puff of nitrogen and collect all this dust, put it into a capsule and send it back to Earth. And we're going to get it in a few years. Like that is absolutely insane, insane. that, that we're doing that. Nuts. Not many people know about it. I had no you know idea. what the mission is? Nope. Never. It's, it's never a mission it. called Osiris Rex. And it's super cool. A bunch of UCF professors are working on it. Wow. Um, and it's just incredible. Um, and that's not even a human mission, and, yeah. and it's and it's crazy. Just just today, um, NASA went ahead and and greenlit a mission that will send a nuclear powered quadcopter to the moon of Titan. <laughs> so there's going to be this okay. this uh, this this helicopter that's going to be flying around the moon of Titan because we think that there's really good chance that there are signs of previous life on the moon. So here's what I think. Tuesday will be the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11's launch, and the country will be celebrating for the whole week. It's a story of success and growth and impossible thinking that changed the way we view the universe and our place in it forever. But what makes Apollo 11 even more incredible is the amount of time it took to get it right. It took mission after mission, thousands of individuals with a commitment to the work and a belief in its ability to succeed. Like Kennedy said, We chose to go to the moon. The brilliant individuals that made these programs work knew they had it in them and figured out each and every step to get it right. Young just happens to be the most exemplary figure of that dedication. He wasn't just funny or reverent or intelligent. He knew it was a job that needed to get done. It was important, yes, but it was his job. So be a little more like John Young in your work. We have to be playful. Be confident. And if we're going to get it done, we're going to get it done right. Before I go, I have one last story to share, courtesy of Brendan and the good people at NASA. John Young was chosen to command Apollo 16, which would carry himself and two others to the moon in order to test gravity, collect samples, and run several other experiments. There's this recently released sound um, from John Young. He's on the moon and he's talking to Charlie and he said, and it starts out where he goes, I got him again, Charlie. I got the farts. I got the farts again. I got him again, Charlie. I, mean, I haven't eaten this much citrus fruit in 20 years. So I'll tell you one thing. 
in another 12 days. I ain't never eating anymore. And he had gotten a bout of gas on the moon. And he's, and he's blaming it on the oranges that they're making him eat. He's like, I've had so much effing citrus. <laughs> he's like, when I get back, I'm never, I'm never drinking orange juice or eating an orange again. And so then you hear the Capcom guy go. Okay, uh, John, you have a hot mic. Oh, hey, John, we got a hot mic. And you hear John. Well, how well, long we had, had that? that? You know, <laughs> knowing full well that he has just said he's mm-hmm. never going to eat oranges or oh, orange juice again mm. being from orlando not the good citrus for florida state. <laughs> not good for our brand that the, the citrus and the astronauts not good for our brand having a negative relationship yeah. there that's so, so good he's get, gets a case of the farts <laughs> on the moon and inadvertently turns the microphone on and tells the entire world that mm-hmm. he is tooting on the moon mm-hmm. and will never eat citrus fruit again <laughs> great great i'm sure that the citrus industry was in love with that brand and i'm sure that's the first thing that they were thinking mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in and that's NASA H2. totally yeah this man flew six separate space flights two in gemini two in apollo and two space shuttles he was the head of the space shuttle program the chief of the astronaut office and served with nasa for 42 years and here he is the historic astronaut himself farting on the moon. If that doesn't solidify this man as one of the greats, I don't know what does. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. There are some really amazing things coming to this show, and I would love for as many people as possible to be aware of everything coming. While you're here, please consider leaving a rating or a review below. Reviews can really help independent podcasts like this one flourish, and your help goes a long way. Even just one little rating. If you haven't listened to the special Flagler series, there isn't a better time to start than right now. All four episodes are available and make for a really spectacular listen. I couldn't be prouder of them if I tried. Please give them a listen. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. The links for those are in the description below. If you have an idea for an episode for year two of this show, please send it my way on those accounts or at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. All of the research used in this episode can be found in the description below. All of the songs used in this episode are from Lobo Loco. You can find those titles below as well. I would also like to give a very special thank you yet again to Brendan Byrne from WMFE. If you would like to hear more from him, you can check out his podcast, Are We There Yet? It is one of my absolute favorites. I would highly recommend the recent episode titled, When We Leave This Planet. It is just spectacular, and Brendan really knows how to tell a story. Next week, I'll be telling you about a very special Florida bird, the one that inspired the creation of this show, The Black Skimmer. Then, two weeks from today, will be the one-year anniversary of the creation of this show. There will be a very special one-year anniversary episode recounting some of the most important things in the past year, along with some exciting announcements about the future of Wait 5 Minutes. Until then, I am Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself be good to others, have a very happy celebration of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and please drink more water. Have a good one.